We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. If you're at home, thank you for watching. You are about 25 seconds behind real time here in the church, but you're getting it pretty close to real time. Uh, we are in Matthew 18, 15 to 17 uh, tonight. I was debating about whether to throw you another curveball, but uh, as a good pitcher, never uh, throw uh, curveballs, you know, and you know many of them in a row. So just uh, get back to the basics here. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. I'd like to read. Uh, actually from verse 12 with you tonight, and then uh, review briefly what we went over and then touch again on uh, some of the material before us here toward the end of the segment of text. We start in verse number 12. We ask the Lord to help us. We trust He will. Uh, it says they here, this Jesus speaking, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go into the mountains and seek the one who is straying, I want you to notice the great effort that he goes to for one sheep. That is a disproportionate effort compared to the 99 for whom very little effort is needed because they followed what they were supposed to do. They followed the shepherd and went into the fold or, or the field, wherever they were lodging, uh, maybe that uh, afternoon and evening. So a disproportionate amount of effort goes in sometimes to uh, recovering an individual sheep and verse 13, if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety and nine who did not go astray. Even so, now we come out of the language of illustration or parable and into the language or the meaning of, uh, of what the Lord is speaking about, what he's referring to in this illustration. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Remember, the little ones are the little ones who believe in me, verse 6. And verse 10, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. And so the sheep is a picture of the little ones. The little ones are believers. And the will of the Father is that none of those who he has will perish. Very comforting. Uh, but at the same time, it means that once you're in the faith, you're not just free to stray about wherever you want because there is going to be somebody chasing after you. That is God. And may I suggest that God doesn't do that necessarily in a... He doesn't do that in a way that is personal to Him like He goes in some special manifestation to chase after somebody. How does He do it? He does it through means, okay? Just like in the gospel, God doesn't send himself or angels to go tell Cornelius. He says to a man, Peter, you go with these men and you tell them the words that I will share with you at the time. So what is with this matter of, of recovering a straying sheep, God doesn't go. He doesn't send angels. He sends people. 
So we have the privilege, the responsibility, and sometimes the very distressing responsibility of going to find these lost sheep. So God uses people to do that. And what he's talking about in verses 15 to 17 is exactly that. How does God use the church and the individuals in the church in order to recover a sinning saint? Hopefully a saint, somebody who makes a profession of faith, hopefully a real one. And so then we go to 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, okay, now we're totally out of the parabolic or metaphorical or illustrative language and right into real life here. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Now, if you're a Bible underliner or a highlighter or whatever, I think you should underline those words, you have gained your brother. That will guide you to remember what this is all about. Sometimes this ministry of, uh, of, of recovery, if we could call it that, not, not addiction recovery, oh, it might be addiction recovery, but recovery of a brother from sin or a sister, um, to recover them from, from going astray, the goal of that is to gain them back. It's not to keep them away. It's not to use it as an excuse to say, wow, <laughs> Glad to be rid of them. Good riddance. You know, they've just been a bowl full of trouble. Um, No, it's not that. It's that you would want to gain your brother. Verse 16, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So the final step is, well, you you weren't able to gain your brother, but you were able to gain something else. What's that? Well, purity in the church is what you were able to gain by removing somebody. So we see here a three- or four-step process, depending on how you count the steps. Last time we went over this, I took some time to go over a number of cautionary points about the interpretation of this passage. I'm not going to go over those all again, but you can listen to that message if you'd like. Again, online, it's, it is online. I think it is. Uh, yes, it is. I checked that today. It is. So we went over that. We went over the first step and the purpose of church discipline, as it's called. And this you know, way of looking at it, really starting with verse 12 through 14, it is recovery of a sinning brother. In other words, As some have said, it's the ministry of the church to the unrepentant sinner because the unrepentant sinner is a brother who is straying away from the the church family, right? So we talked about this a little bit. I mean, you know, you probably have other more favorite things to do than to go to your brother and tell him that he sinned against you. You know, you'd probably rather have... um, you know, some strawberry shortcake, something like what I ate last night at my brother's house for a little snack. Uh, much rather do that than have to go talk to somebody about their sin, you know. But it's not always how life is. You have the uh, unpleasant responsibilities as well. So you may be uh, stressed out by that uh, because you fear that he may respond negatively or there may be a blow up or something could ruin your friendship and all that. We looked at that. But here's the thing. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. What a blessing. What a relief. 
what a, a gift from God. Do not lack the faith that God can do that. Okay, you're going to be Peter and, uh, and get out of the boat very confidently and then about two seconds later start to sink because your faith has waned very quickly. Um, look, I'm not saying that I would do any better, please. I don't think most of us would do any better either, you know. But we have more faith in physics than we do in God, right? Because we know physics tells us we're going down. God says, no, no, you're going to stay up. Uh, so don't have more faith in physics than you have in God. But in any case, you know, don't have more, more faith in your pessimism. Well, he's never going to listen. Uh, he's just going to get mad. You know, you'll be faithful in your pessimism, but not in God who can make a change in somebody's life. And in any case, you need to be faithful to the witness God has called you to be uh, in this matter. We're not just witnesses to the gospel to the unbelieving, but witnesses to the gospel to the believing as well. So the brother hopefully hears, he responds, he repents, he gets it, he receives the rebuke, he's a wise person, he recognizes the faithful wounds of a friend, and he repents of his sin. Um, well, let's see, we talked last time about all of that. We talked about if the brother sins against you, that's going to happen. That just is this life. Uh, we talked about the seriousness or severity level of the sin. Sometimes we just need to let them, uh, let them go on by and uh, not, not deal with them. Um, then we looked at the second step of the process, which uh, the Lord gives here in trying to recover a lost sheep. You know, if you can't find them at the first pass uh, in the mountains, you go to the second one, and then you go to the third one and uh, try to recover this one, however far off he has strayed. Um, so if he fails to heed the call to repent and make things right, it's time to take two or three others. These are witnesses of the offense, of the offense. Uh, not witnesses that you go and talk to him a second time, okay? Witnesses of the offense. I think that's clear. The matter has to be established by two or three witnesses. Uh, and I, I, I mentioned that, you know, last time. Um, it, it is a vexing uh, situation when somebody uh, does a crime and there are not more witnesses. But then it's also more vexing when somebody does a crime and there is a false witness or a mistaken witness or a bad uh, uh, piece of uh, forensic evidence and somebody gets sent to jail wrongly. That's an insufferable, uh, terrible error, egregious in its nature. And so what God has done by demanding two or three witnesses protects, helps to protect the innocent, but it may let off some people who are, who are sinning and, uh, and, and cr uh, cr criminals, you know, in the criminal law realm. But here... Uh, likely um, the person will, you know, show their hand again sometime. And so even if there aren't two or three witnesses this time, maybe there will be more over, built up over time to that. The point is you're still wanting to gain your brother. You're not wanting to go look for reasons to uh, hang him, so to speak, or get him, you know, catch him. That's not your spirit as a true believer. In a spirit of gentleness, you're looking to restore one who is, fallen into sin, Galatians 6.1. I believe there should be plenty of grace in this process um, and plenty of time. You know, you can visit, talk to the person um, more than one time. 
If the church becomes involved, which is the third step, then the same grace and patience is to be exhibited. Uh, sometimes these processes take weeks and weeks, months, going through them. And uh, so do be patient uh, with your brothers and sisters, with your family members. You know, we're dull people. We're slow. We get upset easily. We uh, don't recognize faults. Um, and so we need to recognize that about ourselves and then, and then with others also. So if the uh, unrepentant brother persists in straying away from the church, uh, you've sent one person after him, it didn't work. You've sent two or three more. They haven't been able to recover him. Now you, you, you know, put it to the whole church. You say to the church, look, we need your help now. Uh, one man couldn't, couldn't carry the load. Two or three men couldn't carry the load or witnesses. We need everybody, all hands on deck here to assist. And so the assembly must be brought into the situation uh, in, a, in an attempt to show the sinning brother the weight of his problem. Uh, in the end, to protect the church from the sinning brother if he persists and he is having a negative influence on the church but also as the final court of appeal, if you will, uh, the church would make its decision to remove the person from its membership if it came to that. We pray that it doesn't, but sometimes it has in many churches. The church should pray for and approach the brother with a loving appeal to change and try to get right again. Okay, that's very, very straightforward. Um, and as we'll say at the end, the problem is not in understanding this. It's very easy to understand. If that fails, then, uh, you know, three strikes kind of in you're out, then it becomes likely that the brother is not genuinely saved. He's acting unsaved if he persists in clear sin, you know, serious sin we're talking about here. Uh, he had plenty of opportunity to adjust his ways. As the course of time unfolds, it becomes more and more unlikely that he is uh, exhibiting, if he's not exhibiting the grace of God, that he just is not in the grace of God as, as someone continues to refuse to come back to the Lord. That's a tough situation to, uh, to find someone in, but Sometimes that happens, and you don't know. I mean, David, we say, you know, he was in sin for a long time, and a year, the Scripture indicates to us, and or more. And, uh, you know, of course, some of these kings just had gobs of sins, you know, like all their wives and concubines and all the things that they were doing and, and didn't realize them. So, we again, we're leaving room for patience and grace uh, to be exhibited, but... Um, when the standard is clear, when the violation is clear, when the call to repent is clear, uh, you can't make other conclusions than that. Well, we're just going to have to put this person out and let God deal with them. Or, as Paul suggests in 1 Corinthians 5, what realm does a person go into when they're put out of the church? Into the realm of the world or the realm of Satan. Yes, put, put him out so that he may uh, suffer the destruction of his flesh, as it were, Paul says. We'll read that, uh, Lord willing, in just a moment. Yeah, that's what's happening. This process that the Lord has laid out is very wise. 
for at least two reasons. One, it protects anyone from being accused falsely by a pastor or an individual in the church because we can't just bring any frivolous charge before the church. You have to be able to justify that sin before the church. I mean, uh, you know, if it's a clear, clear violation, it's, it's, you know, I don't know, adultery, continuous adultery or something like that, obviously, needs to be attended to. Um, if it's, you know, you don't like something about how somebody does something, <laughs> you're not going to bring that to the church. That, that is a gate uh, way, a, a blocker that prevents frivolous things from being brought or interpersonal difficulties from being brought before the church. It maintains a level of accountability so that dumb stuff is not brought up. But second, it shows the offender the severity of their sin. The entire church is agreeing that it is a sin to fill in the blank, whatever it is that's going on, and it's not appropriate amongst God's people. Some sins, like the one in 1 Corinthians 5, were such that you shouldn't even be talking about them. They're so bad. This should get a person's attention when the weight of the church comes upon them. It's not just an individual or pastor who doesn't like me. It's the church who loves me who is calling me to repent if I'm in sin. The whole assembly, okay? This is not, you know, uh, a 60-40 filibuster-proof kind of deal. It's not the Democrats versus the Republicans. It's the church saying to somebody, you cannot continue to live like that. You have to be in fellowship with God's people. You have to be in fellowship with the Lord. You cannot be living in unrepentant sin. So when the church goes about this and tells the straying sheep, look, if you're persisting in being out there in the, in the world and with the devil, then our door, until you repent, our door is closed. We can't have you come in here. You're, why? Because you're going to bring the disease of sin into our fold, and we don't want that here. You're going to be talking, you know, somebody has false doctrine that they're, that they're preaching. Well, if they don't repent of that, you have to just say, look, we're, we're not going to have that false doctrine in this church. It's dangerous for us, so you need to stay away. When, when a church treats a person like an unbeliever and a tax collector, which is, by the way, what the Lord says, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector, that means that the church estimates the person is not behaving as a true Christian. And, and, and since what the church binds on earth is bound in heaven and what is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven, and if they forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If they retain the sins of any, they're retained. This is just biblical language here, I think is referring to this sort of thing then uh, this means that the church has a very important role and the person who is a sinner needs to listen to that role. Now, technically, even at this point, this is not giving up on the person. Just because you treat someone like a tax collector or a sinner, uh, still you're hoping for restoration or salvation in the first place but the likelihood seems to statistically decrease as time goes on for somebody to be restored. Do you understand what I'm saying about this? Um, there's still a hope for restoration. Uh, do you treat a person who is a tax collector or a... Yeah, sometimes you do treat IRS agents like they're wicked sinners. No, I'm just kidding. 
do you treat tax collectors and sinners like they're enemies? Do you hate them? No, otherwise, how could you preach the gospel to them? You know, just somebody who's, it just means that they're outside of the church. Everybody's outside of the church, and they have, that, that's not in the church, obviously, and, and, and they have need, the need of the grace of God. So just because you treat them this way doesn't mean that they're suddenly some kind of, you know, worse than an infidel. They might just be an infidel, uh, if that. So what should other other churches do then with a person in this situation? If the offender goes to another church, which is altogether too common, the, ch- the second church would be nice if they would call the first church and <laughs> ask them what's going on. I tell you, I've had several people come to this church and they, um, uh, I think, I'm just the ones I'm thinking of are the kind of example. I don't think they've stuck around if they've said, uh, I don't want to share with you where I used to go to church. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a red flag. That is a red flag. Um, But the second church should generally defer to the first church, which brought the disciplinary action and and not have that person join their membership. That doesn't often happen. Churches are often more happy to have more members than they are to have more holy members. The second church doesn't know enough about the situation or perhaps only one side of the story, so it cannot make an independent judgment as to whether the person is okay or not. Now, if the pastor calls from church two to church one and finds out church one was doing something frivolous, well, of course, then they understand the situation better and they can proceed wisely. But at least the church, the second one, should be wary because the person was the cause of a problem at the other assembly, and that kind of person should not just be welcomed willy-nilly into the second church. People don't leave their problems with the church that they left. Never. They always take their problems with them, okay? Yep, in one form or fashion. All right, just a couple of other notes here. Uh, the first is in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 13. Uh, and I just put these, this in my notes here, which, are, which is a, are available for you online there. You can see the PDF file is there. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I mention it because it's a related passage. And we'll have a second one as well, but... Uh, let me just summarize it. This passage gives an example of a man living in sin. It gives instruction about the removal of this man from the fellowship. It talks about his destination, verse 5, I alluded to before. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Even at this late date in the person's life in in this you know extreme extremity of of circumstances paul is saying we want his spirit to be saved his body may be destroyed he may suffer all kinds of terrible consequences in this life but if god gets a hold of his soul his heart all the better for him in the long run but so uh the man's destination there. The proper attitude for the church is not one of pride. You know, look at us. We accept all sinners. Oh, really? Yeah, the Lord Jesus accepts all sinners and changes them. 
we're supposed to be that kind of institution as well, or organism, if you will, uh, not to be proud about it. We're to notice the danger of leaven in the church, the need for purity. Just a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little sinful doctrine goes a long way. Um, I was reading in a book on hermeneutics here recently, and this phrase, all truth is God's truth. Have you ever heard that before? Where's that in the Bible? All truth is God's truth. It's not in the Bible. But people recite that as if it's like, you know, Hezekiah 1.1. (laughs) It's a Bible verse, you know? No, it's not a Bible verse. All truth comes from God, but what that phrase is actually meaning is that all truth is God's truth, like John 3.16 is like astrophysics. It's all truth. It's all God's truth. And so they are basically equating the scientific realm with the biblical realm, and uh, it's an error in thinking, but people think that. And so you can have this kind of creep of ideas come out from the world into the church, and you begin to think, well, that's, that's, that's Bible. I mean, that's, you know, God helps those who help themselves, right? Where's that in the Bible? You know, that's not there. But um, then the other passage is, uh, oh, and by the way, uh, the church needed some correction there in Corinth about judgment for those outside the church as opposed to those inside. They had some odd way of thinking about it that, you know, they were not to, to comp- keep company with immoral people at all in the in the world anywhere. But Paul didn't mean that. He did not mean with the immoral people of this world or the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, for then you'd need to go out of the world. What, he's, what Paul is saying is you're supposed to handle those inside the church and cleanse the church out, but you can't clean the world out. That's just the world, and you've got to recognize that. So keep the church the church, keep the world the world, and try to win people from the world into the church, but not keep the world in the church. And then the other passage is uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, 6 to 15. And we can preach, uh, and I have, entire messages on both of these, multiple messages on these chapters that we've looked at. But I'll just try to summarize this one as well. In this section of Scripture in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through the end, uh, well, actually, almost, almost the end, Uh, We read that Christians should hold back full fellowship from any professing brother who walks disorderly, which means out of step with biblical instruction generally, not following Paul's diligent example, and specifically not being able to, or sorry, not being willing to work. Strike that word able, not being willing to work. Instead of working, they're being busybodies with their time. Such people, Paul commands to uh, work and eat their own food, and if they do not, listen to this instruction, either generally or specifically in the matter of being not working and being a busybody, then the other Christians are to note them and not keep company with that person so that they may be ashamed. We're not to treat them again as an enemy, but admonish as a brother. The end of verse 15 says that. We alluded to that earlier. So we don't treat those in Matthew 18, 17 as enemies either, but as possible brothers who have gone astray and need to be brought back. They're not enemies. They are in need of God's help and in need of exercising their wills in repentant 
faith. So, with all that said, we close with this comment. The objections that I dealt with earlier uh, are, this is not, you know, not tonight, but the last time we looked at this Sunday evening. The objections notwithstanding, the problem with this passage is not in understanding it. The problem with this passage is in doing it. It's the obeying of these things. Um, and that's a burden for, for us. I mean, we can understand the Bible. You know, this is, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Great, got it. I've, I've memorized that verse. Okay, what about starting to obey it? What about getting after obeying it? Uh, the Scripture says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Okay, I know that verse. Yeah, but what about obeying it? What about actually doing it? It's the obeying of the words that is important, the words of God. Uh, After you evaluate whether an issue of sin should even be brought up, and many times it should not be, the issue is to care enough about someone that you will speak with them and try to win them back into the fold. Yes, it takes disproportionate effort to bring one sheep back when you could say, well, I've got 99 and they're nice and no problems. But you know what? You could make an awfully big difference to that one by the effort that you put in. And God calls us to such sanctified effort to help those who are lost. And hopefully in all eternity, you will be bearing uh, fruit, earning dividends, if you will, on those efforts for people to help them. So I pray that that's our hope and uh, pray for one another that we don't go astray, but if we do, we get gently and quickly led back into the fold of God's family. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege to be here tonight and for the time to touch the Word of God and to try to understand it a little better and to challenge ourselves to be obedient to it. Lord, we love you and thank you for your loving kindness. How, how wonderful you have been to us. In Jesus' name, amen.